1: Welcome back, everyone. We are looking forward to finishing up hopefully today the fourth part of our series: five proven steps to become rich and stay rich. And of course, this is part four. Again, want to uh, sincerely thank all of you for your continued support of this topic. This is so far ahead of our skis with regards to normal real estate content um, that we are, you know, we are a little nervous about presenting it. As I think I was fully transparent with all of you about that. But I'm so happy excited that you guys are finding this information interesting and I can tell that you're starting to share this podcast on these series because I can see on our analytics by the way I would sincerely appreciate it if you would do just that please do let other people know about our podcast the podcast growth is almost exclusively from the fact that you guys are sharing um, links to the podcast and this is and continues to be the number one listened to daily podcast I know for a fact in the United States, I'm not sure about the world, probably the world, but it's certainly the number one listened to daily podcast for real estate agents in the United States, probably Canada, Australia, England. But who knows? So look, the bottom line is people are listening because they like what we have to say. I think the marketplace, you guys, us as well, are so sick of the Mickey Mouse that's been sold to agents over the last 15 years that you're looking for the truth. You're looking to get back to the real focus on why you got into real estate in the first place. You need to go back and listen to the first three shows we did on this topic. And also, at any time, you can go back and listen to any of our previous podcasts. They're certainly available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Um, And you can also go over to our main website, timandjulieharris.com, and you can listen to the podcast replays there as well. I know a lot of you guys listen to us off Facebook, and you listen to us off the Twitter links and all that good stuff too, but absolutely positively help us expand um, the audience and help us to help all the other agents out there get their heads screwed on straight about what it really does take to be successful long-term in this real estate business, because unfortunately, You know, the information that's been disseminated over the last uh, 10 years plus out there has mostly resulted in a lot of agents failing out of the business, which is very unfortunate. So, guys, we're going to focus on, and we're getting into the weeds of the topic that we've been sharing with all of you, which is the five proven steps to become rich and stay rich. You're definitely going to want to listen to the first three shows that we did. Today's show is going to be all about taking notes, and so I have to put a little disclaimer out there. Oh, before I do. Hey, Julie, welcome to the podcast. Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you. It's going to be a fun show. Now we're really going to drill down.
1: Yeah, we are. We are. This is the fun part. This is the part, guys, The where we're going now with this information is where it was the hardest for Julie and I to do this research. This is the culmination, essentially. And it's, this information is about as drilled down as I care to do it on a podcast because Julie and I are not financial planners. We're not attorneys. We're not tax not advisors. Yeah, right. It, that's right. And you can reference back to our main, our book, which is Harris Rules, which um, continues to be a bestseller. It's on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble. It's an evergreen, year-round, perfect gift to give to somebody, also a perfect gift to give to yourself. The, uh, over 300 five-star reviews, I think the book has really proven to be uh, something that agents, again, like this podcast, they go hand-in-hand, hand, really do complement each other. So please go and purchase the book. It's available on Amazon. Uh, they have dynamic pricing, but last time I looked, they were trying to sell me our book for $11. <laughs> Sometimes I know people are paying $20. Other times I n- know they're p- paying uh, 8 It's also available on Kindle. I noticed that the publisher made it available on Kindle as well. So make sure you uh, get your uh, Harris Rules book. Harris Rules is about the most comprehensive A-to-Z business plan, or essentially, Julie, how would you even describe it? It's impossible to describe. It's basically a comprehensive way for you to approach the real estate business, and really any business, by the way, with the, with the mindset of well, obviously being of service yeah. to other people and making profit. Go ahead, Jules.
2: It's, it's what it says, a real estate agent's practical, no BS, step-by-step guide to becoming rich and free. So how I uh, put it together as I was assembling these chapters, was really trying to put all the concepts that we have in, well, it's impossible to be all of them, but most of the core key concepts that we have in coaching that we talk about on the podcast, that we post about on our website, and marry them all together in a logical step-by-step way that they're interconnected and that these guys get it. Because if you just take one little piece out, but you don't implement the rest, it makes a lot less sense. So it's kind of the coming together of all of this. That's what it is.
1: I'm writing a note to myself. I just actually had a great idea um, as far as the book goes. No, well, I mm-hmm. thought we should send we, – we have signed quite a few of these books for you guys. I'm thinking that Julie and I were going to use those uh, books, hand-signed books, and send them to our private coaching clients with little Hang notes out. inside for Christmas presents and holiday presents and birthday mm-hmm. presents. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Anyway, okay. so that's what I was writing down when uh, Julie called me back to action. So the topic is the Wealth Building Core uh, spoke. So this is part four. So write these things down. Now, I'm going to go through the first few points relatively quick. These are, I put these in steps because, frankly, we've already covered all this stuff, um, and uh, I want to get to the, the heart of it. So step one, and this is part four again, Wealth Building Core spoke. Step one is master your craft as a listing agent. Focus all your best, eight, uh, best skills, best energies, best everything on becoming a powerful listing agent. Uh, you don't need a team. You don't need branding. You don't need to be a, a social networking guru. You don't need all of the things that you think you need to be a successful listing agent. So what I want you to seriously consider doing is right now, grab your phone, go to your text, type uh, text in the word Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, and text it to 31996. Text the word Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, to 31996. And when you do, we're going to send you back links to download six free books, but the one I want you to download the first is the Real Estate Treasure Map. The Real Estate Treasure Map is your fill-in-the-blank business plan. It's going to take you through an exhaustive, you know, comprehensive approach to getting your act together as far as your finances, but also what it's going to do is help you focus on the best, quickest way to be profitable in the real estate business, which is finding um, your path to be a listing agent. That's what our coaching program focuses on. We certainly help you guys learn how to work with buyers and all that in our coaching program. But at the end of the day, if you want true freedom, if you want libertas selling real estate, the best, easiest, most assured way to do it is becoming a listing agent. If you haven't gotten that. Debt, Down yet? You need to work on that because working with buyers, certainly buying buyer leads, is never going to get you a sense of freedom. If you don't believe me, just think about it. It just makes sense. If you had a choice between having ten solid, great, easy to sell, perfectly priced, conditioned houses, if you you, right now choice between ten listings or ten buyers, which would you choose? you'd instantly go at the listings because the listings aren't going to require that you work nights and weekends. The listings, it's like a business. So if you had 10 listings at all times and other agents were out there trucking around in the snow in the winter and the cold and the, you know, the snotty, all the stuff that goes with basically working with consumers, and you didn't have to do that because you are focused on being a listing agent, you can choose to put all your best energies every day in focusing on taking listings and let the marketplace, let your fellow agents go out there and sell the listings for you. That is the mindset and the business approach that we want you to seriously consider adopting. And the first step is for you to complete the real estate treasure map. Just text the word Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S, to 31996. Um, Treasure map is one of those six free books that we're going to give you. Just download all of them, but get the treasure map done ASAP. All right, so that's your master of your craft, step one. Step two is have low personal overhead. Um, again, we've talked about this before on previous podcasts, but that really is one of the core fundamentals of wealth accumulation It's not having a huge personal burn rate. And one of the things we teach you to do in the real estate treasure map, and this is not an easy thing for a lot of agents to do, it gives them anxiety, but it still it's valuable to know – is you figure out what your personal monthly overhead is, and you divide it by 30, the average days in a month, and you figure out exactly how much you and your family take to run every single day, that your personal burn rate, how much money you burn every day, just essentially cover your personal overhead. And you might – and you might find that number's low. you might find that number's ridiculously high, but then it gives you a sense of how much income you need to be generating every single day. You guys see how our approach to the real estate business is just literally night and day to everybody else. Once you know that number, it will give you a sense of calm. It will give you a sense of control because then you'll have a very clear path forward on what you can do to basically start accumulating. So if you have to earn $300 a day, if that's your nut, then maybe the next move is going to be to earn $600 a day, and you can start saving the $300. you guys get the concept here? But the number one thing is have as low personal overhead as you possibly can because it makes the next steps that much easier. Step number three master creating savings, building reserves. So creating savings. Here's the simplest way I can explain for you guys to do this. And by the way, if you want a real drill down, we strongly suggest you read Dave Ramsey's books. Uh, Dave Ramsey is somebody who everyone discovered after the real estate recession. And now most people in real estate don't even talk about him anymore, which is kind of funny. But Dave Ramsey's books are probably, uh, you know, I have never found fault in his philosophies and we've, known num- we've had many, many coaching clients that have sworn by him, and we've listened to his podcast, and Julie and I have read his books too, and they're just really spot on. So Dave Ramsey's books for basically how to get your finances in order. It's very clear, concise, practical, tactical, and uh, Dave Ramsey's approach of no nonsense is very similar to what Julie and I um, do with coaching. Now, as far as creating savings, here's the thing. Low overhead, creating savings. You're, not going to have, you're going to have a hell of a hard time creating savings if you have high personal overhead. just makes sense, right? But we want you to talk about building reserves. There's different philosophies on how much reserves you should have. Some people say six months. Some people say you know, 90 days. Here's our personal uh, philosophy, what Julie and I have done ourselves. We want to have two years of personal reserves. And by personal reserves, here's how it works. You take the amount of money that you have to earn every single month, And you have to have that money, uh, you know, maybe it's for you, it's 90 days, it's six months. Start with 30 days and expand from there. But we always have a minimum of two years in personal reserves of whatever our personal burn rate is, multiplied times 24, and we have that socked away. Now, here's another thing, and I want you to research this yourself. You should have your personal reserves in a mixture of cash and gold. I know some people think gold is some sort of ridiculous thing to even suggest. But research it yourself. Do some homework on this, and you're going to find that gold, not a huge amount dependent on your net worth, but gold is an excellent thing uh, to hold. Most experts, financial what have yous, are uh, suggesting that everyone has at least 10% of their net worth in gold. If your net worth is $100,000, that means you should have $10,000 in gold. Uh, Buy gold coins, too. Um, That's just when you're getting started with your personal savings, that's the way to go about doing it. There's a lot of interesting ways to store the gold, Again, do your homework on this yourself. Uh, Texas Gold Bullion, uh, check them out, texasgoldbullion.com, I believe. You can purchase your gold there, but they'll also store it for you, or you could store it yourself. These are just savings. This, this is all this is. This is basically your zombie plan. You know, This is what happens if – there's some sort of massive. Now, people say, well, I'm just going to go down this little rabbit hole ever so quickly. People say, Tim, if there was ever some sort of, you know, like uh, a Maria, like Jillian and I are living in, in Puerto Rico, right? If there was ever sort of a Maria hurricane, or if there's ever sort of, you know, widespread uh, fires in California, and, you know, why do you need gold? You don't need gold, you need other things. You need things you can consume and that makes sense. The gold is for what you do after uh, civility returns. The gold is what you use as, your me- as, as the measure of commerce after the storm uh, clouds clear. That's where you could start picking up and purchasing things on sale. Now, maybe you don't, can't convince yourself to purchase any gold, at least have some cash. Wouldn't you have loved to have a hoard of cash back, say, in 2008 and 2009? Wouldn't you have loved to have that saved? Well, this is where you get started doing it. It's a discipline. Now, when Julie and I are first getting started savings back in our early 20s, what we did, and this is so rudimentary, but it works, is we started, what was it, Julie, 10%? We started saving 10%, 10% yep. of every single nickel we earned. So if we had a $60 AHS home warranty commission come in, Julie would literally squirrel away six, uh, 6 bucks and put it into a savings uh, account. Every single cent. Now, once we paid off debt, once we got our overhead down, then we increased it. So we increased it to 20%, 30%, 50% of all of our income. And then eventually what we were able to do is we were literally able to start saving like 75% of our income because our income so far outpaced our personal earnings, our personal overhead. You guys understand? If your personal overhead is low, Let's say some of you can easily live a nice, comfortable life on $7,500 a month. Well, if you're consistently earning $75,000 a month or even $50,000 a month, that gives you an opportunity to save money. Well, save the damn money, not just for the sake of hoarding cash, but save the money so you can essentially put that money to work for you and you start purchasing assets. Again, you're going to have to do your own homework on this, but we're going to give you some suggestions on the types of assets you should be acquiring here in a second. I know I'm going kind of quick. Hopefully, you guys will take some notes, and you'll go back and listen to this. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about step four. And, again, I'm going to get into some specific things that maybe you guys should consider buying as far as assets in a second. But step four is where things get interesting, and this is where you're going to have to start doing a lot of research yourself. Julie and I are big believers in hedges, or like maybe the simpler way of saying it is buying insurance policies, and I don't mean it literally. So, for example, you can purchase a 529 college savings plan uh, for a kid. And here's the interesting thing about some college savings plans. A couple things you guys should know. First of all, most college saving plans do not require you be a resident of the particular state that's sponsoring it. And last time I checked, which grand was probably about two years ago, one of the best 529s available was out of Utah, but you did not have to be a Utah resident uh, to do it. Julie and I have Zoe's uh, 529 uh, out of Texas. You can have five, and No, look, we're living in Puerto Rico now, but it doesn't matter. So you can put your 520, set your 529s up, and the 529 programs are fantastic. And here's the way the one worked that uh, we uh, did for Zoe. Basically, we picked. It, they, it, it's, it's a tiered structure, but the gist of it is, is you spend essentially. Let's say, for example, Zoe wanted to go to Ohio State University, where Julie and I went, and let's say it costs twenty thousand dollars a year. I don't know how the Ohio 529s work. I'm just trying to give you guys an example. What, what, the way most of the 529s are structured is you would put in $20,000 into this 529. Now, the older the kid is, the more you have to put in, okay? But for Zoe, we did this when she was really young. So we had to put in an equivalent of one year of the college tuition to a expensive college in Texas based on that year's tuition. Do you guys understand? And then we scrolled that money away in the 529, and then what they do is they guarantee that that money that we put in will cover the cost of four years' worth of uh college tuition at that school or an equivalent school now if she doesn't want to go to college that tran- that is transferable and here's this interesting thing about 529s is, like, let's say Zoe just decides she doesn't want to go to college at all. She just wants to manage the, you know, the rental portfolio that she's going to inherit from us. Whatever, okay? So the 529 money, we can use it, and maybe Julie and I want to go take it, you know, a six-month sabbatical in Italy, and, uh, you know, Julie's going to take uh, flute lessons and, you know, wherever, and I'm going to, you know, go learn how to race Formula 1 cars in Monaco all under the guise of using the 529 money. You guys get the point? You can get the money back. You can also give, uh, gift the money to other, other people. You can give it to, you know, that kind of thing. So the 529 plans, as far as tax, you know, essentially tax plans, are one of the best plans out there. And wouldn't it be nice if you have little kids just to make it so that when they're older you don't have to worry about paying for their college education? That's was you know, so there it is. That's a great idea. 529s are a great idea. Um, health insurance is also something you've got to really look into, I know EXP just came out with its own health insurance plan for agents. There's a lot of other different ways to research that. One of the key ways to basically save on health insurance is have a high deductible. When you're younger, just have a major medical program. You don't need anything really beyond that. Uh, Kids are massively expensive when it comes to health insurance, as you guys know. I mean, as far as all the ways they get sick and whatnot. But health insurance is something all of you should have. 529 is something all of you should have. Why am I suggesting you do these things? Because these things are the hedges against the things that happen in people's lives that wipe them out financially. The biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons of personal bankruptcy in the United States is medical bills. So shouldn't it make and wouldn't it make sense, and Julie, if you don't mind telling Michelle's story, wouldn't it make sense to have a health insurance plan in place to cover you? Again, I'm going to say this again. The biggest zombies that can ever show up on your doorstep and wipe you out financially are going to be, number one, health insurance bills for things you wouldn't have expected. A, a kid with under with not enough medical insurance hits you, and you have to have some sort of weird surgery. Or the story that Julie's about to tell you about our friend Michelle.
2: Yeah, and I can't remember whether she just didn't have adequate insurance or she had none. Maybe you remember. But, she had none. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, I have to say, not very many excuses for that, because they make decent money, but let's just say going through life she's i think she's i think she was about thirty eight at the time um a friend of ours from Florida goes up to uh, an event and to visit friends in Pennsylvania. Now, those of you who live in certain states, you don't have basements. Michelle did not grow up with a basement. she's at this friend's house they go out you know to their event they come back, have a couple of things a couple of glasses of wine gets to be pretty late. Michelle goes to bed, okay? Gets up in the middle of the night to use the restroom and mistakes the bathroom door for the basement door. Goes tumbling head over heels all the way to the bottom, hits her head on the cement floor and is not discovered until dawn. Completely blacked out, okay? Concussion the whole nine. I think she's in the hospital for over a month. She told me that she owes over 300000 in medical bills, and she doesn't believe she'll ever get it paid off because, you know, there's things like fees and interest and all of this kind of thing. That was an accident. That's not even a surgery or things, you know, that you might be thinking about, might expect, you know, hopefully not. That was just a freak accident. Florida girl falls into basement. So, you know, cautionary tale to you guys that think it's okay to go through life without health insurance. It's not. I guess it's okay until it's not. Well so
1: the point of it is the point of it is these are things you you guys all know. Yeah, but how many of you guys are jumping out of planes without parachutes right now? And these are the types of things you heard what Julie said. She's probably gonna have that three hundred thousand dollars following her for the rest of her life in some form or another. Not to mention, you know, she's still recovering from the fact that she actually had a you know really severe concussion so these are the things you guys have to be keeping in mind when you're considering basically creating your life's hedges and another hedge depending on where you are in the country You do want to have some kind of water and food reserves. You do want to have those types of things in place so that you are basically, you know, you have hedges against the things that might happen. These things will make you sleep better. When you're having an anxiety-filled day, when people are jerky, when you have deals fall apart, and you have your, you know, as I am fond of saying, steaks in the freezer, which is your savings already in place. When you have your kids 529 at least funded or on its way to being funded, when you have you know, health insurance in place to cover worst-case scenarios, you're not going to be as agitated by that jerky client as you would have otherwise because you've got your basis covered. These are the simple hedges in life. You know, insurance policies, quote, unquote, that will make it so that the worst things that can happen that usually cause people the most financial setback don't happen to you, because all it takes is one little bad thing happening, and there goes all the savings that you've been trying to set aside. Um, You know, and also be careful on your car insurance. If you're driving customers around in your car, make sure that you've got insurance that's uh, sufficient to cover them. Um, if you're a broker, I know errors and admissions insurance is getting really expensive. You've got to make sure – I mean, honestly, I don't know how small brokers are even affording errors and admissions insurance lately. It's getting so ridiculous. But do consider, like, having a fresh look at your errors and admissions insurance and policy. Make sure your errors and admissions insurance policy is covering all the things agents are doing nowadays, mostly doing incorrectly. I'm talking about all the digital marketing. Because when the agent gets sued for doing something in in digital marketing that violates some FTC law, you're going to get sued too. Make sure your insurance policy covers it. These are all the types of things that you need to consider. And by the way, I had an interesting conversation the other day with someone about joining eXp. It was a broker. And um, I I guess I'm channeling that call as I was telling you this because this broker in one year had two issues with agents doing dumb things uh, digitally, and she got sued for both of them, had to settle both of them, and it cost her over $100,000 because the errors and emissions insurance would not cover her because it wasn't on the policy. How insane is that? And so she said, that is it. I do not want to do this broker thing anymore. I want to you know, join the EXP realty. And then we talked about moving her brokerage over, and she's on her way. So a suggestion I have for all of you, if you're a you know, brokerage with less than 100 agents, I would seriously consider that it's time for us to have a conversation about some of your own personal risk mitigation, because obviously the errors and omissions insurance would be covered by EXP. If you want to talk with me directly about EXP, just text me uh, and just text um, at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. Okay, like I said, guys, a lot of this stuff today was going to be wonkish, and hopefully you're creating notes, taking notes. Next, now this is step five. This is really important, um, and we're, this, there's a lot of steps to this, but this is where it gets interesting. Your goal, in order to be rich, is to have, create non-transactional dependent cash flow, and your goal is to create seven ways to cover your personal overhead. This is I'm making it very clear for you guys. So create set, if your personal monthly overhead is $5,000, I want you to consider creating seven different ways of creating $5,000. Most of you have one, and that's basically your real estate transactions. Or maybe you have two, your real estate transactions and maybe your spouse or partner has a job. Or maybe you have a job and you're doing real estate. You guys get my point? You want to have seven. Seven is a big number to accumulate and to create because you do then have to figure out. And remember, I said it cannot be transactionally based. Why? Because if all of your sources of income are dependent on you selling a house, and for some reason you stop selling houses, all your other sources of income are screwed. Do you understand? So for example, you now the only way you're going to be able to create all these additional sources of income is if you become really efficient at selling real estate. By efficient I mean have high profit margins. If you cannot sell real estate and have high profit margins, you're never going to have enough profit left over to start acquiring assets that will produce income for you so that you can then have at least, you know, 3 4 or 5 and ideally 7 different sources of income. Hopefully you guys all understand that. So for example, number 1, okay? You want to create um, – so create a non-transactional dependent uh, cash flow goal, seven ways to cover your personal overhead, each independent of the, uh, of the other. So a property empire, cash flow to cover personals, S- a single families, nice homes, buy where the big money is buying. Now, those are my notes, but here's the drill down on this. All across the country, there are these big hedge fund – you know hedge funds just this big term for a bunch of people that put their money together. They're usually based out of New York, okay? So there's these big companies, U.S. Homes for Rent, and I know BlackRock has – I forget what their investment company is called. But those of you guys who are living in Indiana and North Carolina and Columbus, Ohio, and all these other what had been considered B markets, they are now uh, in those markets, these big investors, and they're buying normal single-family houses. They're not buying distressed property. They're not buying fix and flips. They're institutional investors that are purchasing mostly single-family houses and not the types of single family houses that are you know anyway uh, they 're just normal houses. A house shows up in the MLs uh, you know, four-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, and some nice subdivision in you know Indianapolis, and what, what happens is they are buying this property. They're buying it, and they're not selling it. They're purchasing these properties, and they're holding these properties, and they're holding these properties for the long term. They've held them through the seller's market, so they weren't just riding the appreciation wave, as many people speculated. They're holding these for long-term cash flow. They're paying cash. They're beating out normal buyers. If you're not experiencing that in your marketplace, you're, it might be coming your way. This is what's caused a lot of the normal price inventory to come off the market that no one's really talking about. It's these large institutional investors gobbling up these properties. Now, when Julie and I have an appetite to add more rentals to our portfolio, which we're not doing now because we think think things are a little pricey, but what we have done in the past is we have gone to these big institutional investors' websites, their consumer-facing websites where they list all their properties for rent, and we have looked to see where they're buying. Not necessarily where they bought, but where they're buying. Because what happens is these guys are like, they spread like locusts. So when one of them starts purchasing in a particular area, the, there's other, the, the other two big ones will start purchasing. And then all these little smaller ones will start purchasing too. And then the prices rocket up. Again, go, talk to our friends in Indianapolis, Indiana, and North Carolina, and these other markets. They'll tell you exactly what I'm telling you. And my coaching clients, my personal coaching clients, essentially, they're, they aren't intentionally trying to sell these houses to in, institutional investors. It's just the institutional investors are purchasing these houses all cash, you know, short, quick closes, usually paying full retail, not trying to haggle out little stupid things. They're just buying houses for the sake of long-term buy and holds, right? So what we look for when we're buying is we look for where those guys are buying, and that's what we buy because we know, first of all, that they have, must have done the heck of a lot of research to know that that's a stable market, otherwise they wouldn't be purchasing houses there. But we also know that they're not going to be selling the houses, so there's not going to be a big, in, or, you know, there're not going to be a bunch of listings coming for sale, drive prices down. And the other thing is, and this is not a, a, an assured, you know, return, but chances are those markets are going to appreciate in those particular price points because there's a lack of inventory and because there's this. Ready stream of institutional buyers that are keeping the houses selling. You guys following me on all this? And that formula has worked for us when we really started buying a lot of houses. Really, Julie and I started buying houses as many as we could, uh, starting in um, 2008. That's when we started purchasing. Um, so you guys, that's and that has in our personal goal when we started buying originally was we bought our first house when we were 22 and 23. Our original goal was to purchase enough properties, have them paid off so we could cover our own personal overhead. We accomplished that goal in excess by the time we were in our late 30s, early 40s. But that was something that took a long time to do, and a lot of it came from the last, like since I said 2007, 2008, being able to purchase things on sale. That market is coming back, guys. We have been telling you on this podcast, and I know you're not hearing this anywhere else, the house prices are depreciating around the country. As soon as the news starts talking about the fact that steady, you know, markets like Seattle, Washington are down 15 percent, New York City is off in some, some places 50 percent, Miami in some places is off by more than 50 percent. When people start reporting on that – emotionally the buyers are going to be fearful of catching a falling knife and you're going to start seeing a lot of price reductions because the market has essentially favored buyers in a meaningful way and price and values are dropping that's when you will wish you had cash and I'll caution you against thinking that it's going to be easy for you to borrow uh, to buy those houses because what happens is when the market starts to drop the banks start to pull in their credit lines so if you have a credit line this is another I should have mentioned this before if you have a credit line, in your mind, that's your savings account. And you say you have a $100,000 credit line against your house, and you have it with Bank of America. All is safe and sound. You have, you've only borrowed $5,000 against it to you know, buy a new refrigerator or whatever. Well, guess what? As soon as the market changes, what happens is the banks unilaterally will reduce your credit line to the amount of money you have borrowed, and they will not increase it. So your total credit line will be $5,000. And that will be that, and you won't be able to say anything about it. It's written into your credit line that they can reduce it or cut it off at any point. They could cancel your credit line. This is the reason that Julie and I said you should have cash and you should have uh, money equivalent, which you know, gold is money. Those are the things we suggest you have as your own personal reserves, and you build up from there. Cause it, and again, have low personal overhead, because if you have low personal overhead and you have some lean months, it's not difficult it, you know, to cover your personal overhead. We had a lot of coaching clients that went from being top producers in their marketplace, You know, some of these guys selling 100, 200 houses a year, then for various reasons their market collapsed, their personal uh, economy collapsed, and they started doing BPOs. They started personally doing BPOs and picking up listings where they could to rebuild themselves. Well, guess what they did? They had personal low overhead, and they were able to do enough 60, 75, $90 BPOs, $100 BPOs every single day, every single month to cover their personal overhead. Drill down on what I said a second ago. They knew what their personal overhead was, say $300 a day, and they knew that if they did, say, for example, five BPOs a day, they would more than cover their personal overhead. So that was the first thing they did every day, and then they focused on taking listings. Is that a prescription for long-term success? No. Because it 's too much you know you don 't get enough return on your investment of time, but in, when times are lean you 're going to wish you would have followed that advice. You guys understand what i 'm saying so low personal overhead is a is a hedge against the bad times that happen inevitably in every industry in every real estate cycle. hopefully you 're paying attention. I told you guys this was information was a bit wonkish. All right. Julie has gone off to premier coaching. So tomorrow we're going to talk more about – we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to talk tomorrow about dividend-paying securities. I'm going to talk to you guys about compounding interest. I'm going to talk to you guys about um, all that good stuff. I'm going to talk to you about how as you build one of your spokes, for example, you build your rental portfolio, you have your real estate business humming along, and then what I want you to do is don't spend the money that's coming off the rental portfolio. Let's say you've got enough positive cash flow – to meet and exceed your cash flow needs for your, on your personal side, your rentals are paying you enough per month that that has become a viable income spo- uh, replacement spoke for you. It's a, a, it's a viable spoke. So literally, that has become a way for you to cover all your personal overhead. Well, what do you do with the cash flow? I want you to consider investing that money into hedge funds. And we're going to talk about – I'm not hedge funds, index funds. I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. There's certain types of index funds where you can invest in where they'll pay you dividends. And then you roll those dividends. So the dividends or the profit you have from the rentals, you can roll into buying um, – index funds, and with the dividends or the profit that comes from the index funds, some of them produce literally you know, monthly and quarterly paychecks for you, you then roll that money into buying more securities. And this is how you one thing feeds the other, feeds the other, feeds the other, but it's all dependent on you running a profitable real estate business. Are you guys understanding what I'm saying here? You guys getting what I'm putting down? Do you see how this is a different conversation that we have with you? Um, and this is the very conversation, frankly, when I'm sharing with all of you guys today, is what I wish I would have known and Julie and I would have known when we got married basically 30 years ago. This is what we had been searching for. We had to talk to so many gurus, hire so many accountants, go to so many conferences, listen to so much bullshit. Because most of these people who are out there did not know what the hell they were talking about because they themselves had never accumulated millions of dollars. Finding somebody who's accumulated millions of dollars in assets where they haven't just done it because their company was an IPO, where they haven't just done it because, you know, auntie left them a bunch of money or they're, you know, born on third base. You know, guys, understanding what I'm I'm saying? Finding people that had bootstrapped their way to being multimillionaires was impossible, especially in Columbus, Ohio. We had no mentors. We had to go way outside of our comfort zone, and we had to really drill down and be very, very precise about who we listened to for financial advice. And it took us, unfortunately, probably 20 years. We knew the rental path. That was pretty easy to follow. We knew the selling real estate path. That was pretty easy to follow. But all the other things I'm going to start sharing with you guys tomorrow, those are the hard-fought lessons and the hard-learned lessons that I want you guys all to pay attention to so you can have this information so you can shorten your learning curve and take advantage of everything that we've learned the hard way. And um, so it's not just about earning it. It's not even just about saving it. The next uh, podcast is going to be how to keep it. Remember I promised you that? So the keep up part is the hard part, and that's what we're going to be sharing with you tomorrow. Hopefully this is resonating with you guys. We like this content because, like I said, this is the content we wish we would have known when we got into real estate. So it looks like we're going to have a part five of this series. (laughs) If you need me for anything, guys, if you want to talk about eXp Realty, now's the time. Um, And eXp Realty, by the way, is probably one of the best sources of passive income through the revenue share program. I know a lot of you guys are eXp Realty curious. You've done your research, you've watched some videos, you've got, you know, you started to go down the rabbit hole of being, you know, EXP curious, as I'm fond of saying. If you want to talk with me about that directly, and I'll share with you what others' personal experiences have been, and you, we can work together to decide whether it's a fit for you, just text me directly, 512 758 0206. In the meantime, you guys have a fantastic day. I'll talk to you on the show tomorrow.